For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block uh, to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both uh, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, how many uh, challenging things it says to us, how uh, it says things that we never would have uh, thought of, and yet... Your word brings such light into our life, such hope, such challenge, such purpose. And, but most of all, it leads us to you, that we might know you, uh, that we might trust in you, that we might obey you. And uh, so we pray for your spirit now as we study your word together, that uh, you would be our teacher and uh, minister to us now um, and, and direct these words to the hearts of those who sit here. You know their lives, you know their needs, and uh, so speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we, we are looking this morning at a, a kind of a classic passage where the Apostle Paul's one of his great expositions of uh, the cross of Christ, Jesus' death on the cross, which of course Jesus' death and resurrection is kind of the central event of the Christian faith. And, um, and the reason for that is because Christians, uh, the basic Christian belief is that the reason why uh, the world is not the way it's supposed to be is because all of humanity has, um, even though God made us, even though uh, God has given us uh, breath, he gives us life, he gives us food, he blesses us, he creates us, we have said to God, uh, you know, no th- please don't tell me what to do, please stay out of my life and let me live my own life. And because of this rupture in the relationship that we're, we were meant to have with God, that is why there is all the evil that there is in the world. And so in order for God to come and heal the evil that is in the world, the way God did that was he made an offer to all humanity of reconciliation. He is offering to all people to say, my son has come in your place to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died so that you can have peace with me. And so it's a wide open offer to all people to come and know God and experience uh, the healing of and to become who we were intended to be as humans. Now the thing about that is that uh, for many people, when they hear that, they actually don't hear it as a wide-open offer. They actually hear it as something that's very narrow. Because they say, you know, the thing is, yeah, it's open to all people, but you Christians, you say that this cross, Jesus' death on the cross, is the only way to know God. It's the only path to him. And all these people around the world, they, you know, the world is so diverse and people think so many different things. And you think through this one little door is the only way to get to God. It's not wide open. It's very narrow. So the question is, which is it? Is the cross, is the cross wide open or is it narrow? And, uh, you know, there's uh, one thing that I think is helpful in this. There's, there's kind of a now famous parable uh, that you might be familiar with about the six blind men 
which is uh, a parable about these six blind men who come up to an elephant, and they all are kind of feeling the elephant, trying to figure out what it is, and one of them is grabbing onto the trunk, and they're saying, it's like a hose. And the other guy's feeling the side of it, and he says, it's like a wall. It's not like a hose. It's like a wall. And another guy is feeling the leg. He says, it's not like a wall. It's like a tree trunk. And they're all saying these different things. And the reality is that they're all, it's all an elephant. And each one has a different part of the elephant, and no one really knows it. And people say, you know, this is what the religions are like. They all have a different part of God. They, it seems different to them, but it's all the same elephant, right? And, and, you know, the parable is very powerful. Because on the one hand, it says to everyone that you really legitimately are encountering God and whatever your beliefs are, and yet it makes sense of all the diversity uh, of why people say that God's different. Except there's one problem in the parable, and I don't know if you caught that, but there's actually a seventh person in the parable. Because in order to, for the parable to make sense, there's the seventh person who's watching all the blind men and kind of interpreting what's going on. The one person who comes in and says, you're all a bunch of blind fools who think that you know all about God, but I can see the whole elephant, and I can see that you're all blind. Who's that seventh person? It's the seventh person who says that all the religions are the same and that all these are ways to God. So if you say, actually, that I'm very tolerant of all religions, actually, you're saying that all the religions of the world are blind people who think they know all about God, but they don't, and I am the one enlightened one. I am the one who can see. Now, I don't actually say that as a criticism. I'm only saying that is because whenever you start talking about God, you are always going to say that some people are on the right path and some people are on the wrong path. There's always going to be some level of discrimination. Even if you are the most tolerant person in the world, you're going to say some people are, are on the right path and some people aren't. And so the question is, how do you insist that this is the way to God in a way that is humble, that is not self-righteous, right? That doesn't cause you to look down on other people? Well, what's fascinating about the cross, when we say that this is the one way to God is through the cross, it turns out, what is the cross? The cross is an incredible statement of God's humility, right? God became weak. God came down. He humbled himself. And so we say this is the one way to God, but it is a way of humility. And this is precisely Paul's point, an amazing verse 25, incredible verse. What does he say? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so when God says, this is the only way that you can know me, this is the only way to have a relationship with me is through the cross, he's, he's not doing this from a, a place of, of strength and superiority. He does it from a place of humility and weakness where he comes down to us and himself enters into our weakness. And so let me just say this, that the cross, which we're going to be talking about this morning, is actually an incredibly odd thing. It is the center of, of what Christianity is all about. But it is very strange, you know, you know, that Christians are talking over and over and over about this guy who lived 2,000 years ago who was killed by the Romans on a cross. And they say, this is what life's all about. This is what life's all about. That is strange. It's not a piece of wisdom of how to live. It, it, it's not, you know, it doesn't tell me how to have a better marriage. Well, actually, it does, but kind of as a byproduct, it's, it's just a strange thing that we put at the center, of the, the, the center of life, and when you do, 
All the things in the world start to come together and to fit together when you do it. It's a strange mystery. And so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to meditate on this oddity of the cross. And in particular, we're going to analyze two simple truths about the cross in this passage. And the first is this, is that the cross is foolishness to the world. The cross is foolishness to the world. It is something that does not make sense to the world. It doesn't fit into the way the world sees things or thinks. Okay, So it is foolishness. But second, the cross is the only way to God. If you want to know God, you have to go through the cross. There's no other way. Okay, Because the cross is God's offer of reconciliation. If you want to know him, he says, this is how you need to know me. Okay, So two things. First, the cross is, uh, is foolishness to the world. And... You know, these verses, when I first became a Christian, I remember reading these verses from 1 Corinthians, and they had such a power to me for some reason. I love this verse 20 where uh, Paul says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And uh, what Paul is saying is here is, is that when you look at the cross at the center of the Christian life, you'll find out that the great thinkers of the world... Uh, that have uh, you know, been the most popular, the most influential, tend not to be in this place of the cross. They're talking about other things. They, you know, this issue of the cross tends to be something that they are not interested in. They don't care about it. They're somewhere else. They're talking about other things. They, they pass it over. And um, let me just say this. When Paul says, you know, where's, where's the scribe and the debater of the age? Where are the wise men? They're not at the cross. This is not a statement of self-pity, right? He's not saying, why don't the, you know, why don't the intellectuals of our, our age take us seriously? You know, sometimes as Christians, we, we feel that way. It's like, you know, why doesn't academia or the politicians take us seriously? That's not what Paul's saying. Is where are they? Why can't they take us more seriously? What he's saying is um, actually that the center of the Christian message is an offense to the world. And, you know, when I first read this, and I, I don't know what triggers in your mind when I read this about where are the scribes, where are the debaters of the age, where are the wise men? Who is that? Who is that in our culture, the wise men? And, you know, for me initially, that, what always hit me was kind of the academic elites. You know, on university campuses, they're doing research. They're the people of PhDs are really smart, and they talk about things that none of the rest of us really understand. And these are the wise men, and they don't care about the cross. But actually, you know, in Corinth, and especially in the, in the ancient world, philosophy, wisdom, was not something that was simply done by, you know, in esoteric conversations by academic elites. It was actually much more of a street-level activity that the common man was a part of. And so, you know, it'd be common for people to have dinner parties where you got together and you have dinner parties and at the dinner party you're talking about philosophy, you're talking about the new ideas of the age. And, um, and which, you know, sounds like a great dinner party idea. Maybe I'll, I'll do one of those. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, in the marketplace, there'd be these public debates where, uh, the, you know, people would come together and they'd debate about the ideas of the age and common people in the street would come and they would listen And so philosophy and wisdom was actually a part, not just of the elite class, but it was a part of the entertainment culture of of that society. It was was part of their common life. And so I would think that actually the scribes and the debaters of the age in our culture would be more like someone that, you know, might appear on the Oprah Winfrey show, for example, 
All right? You know, people, they're very smart, they're, uh, they write books, they're educated, but they're interacting with the common person. And it's a part of our, you know, what is, what is Oprah Winfrey, right? She, she kind of presents herself as a spiritual leader, bringing us into the deep wisdom of the world. And she has all these people, and they're writers, and they're, um, you know, uh, therapists, and doctors, and, uh, you know, physical trainers, and people who've uh, triumphed over difficulties, all these things. And what she's bringing us into is she's in, she, the whole show is asking the question, what is the deep wisdom of the world? What is the deep wisdom of the world? How can we tap into it? How can we know about it? And, um, of course, if, if you've ever watched the Oprah Winfrey show, of course, wisdom is, is tied in with hope, with prosperity, with uh, healthy relationships, physical health, being fit, eating the right foods, all of these things. And anyone who comes on the show has come to a place of success or triumph in their life, always. So the wisdom of the world is filled with prosperity and hope and, and triumph in it. And now this does not say that there's, you know, not some level of kind of weakness in a show. You know, in our culture, if a show is going to be successful like that, there has to be a sense of authenticity, right? So, you know, that's part of Oprah's charm, right? Is because she brings us into her story and her own struggle with her weight or her own struggle with, uh, you know, the, her journey from coming from kind of... Uh, poverty into success, and we're coming along with her in that journey. But even in that sense, all that authenticity, all that honesty about the hardness of life and weakness, it all comes in the context of a set with an applauding audience and makeup and everything is clean and the lights look good and there's hope and there's, there's positive energy all the time, right? And so I want you to imagine that. This is what the wisdom of the world is, is what Paul is saying. And it is so attractive to us. We are hungry for it. We are longing for it. Now, I want you to take that and I want you to imagine, forgive me for a second, this is gruesome. I want you to imagine Oprah Winfrey crucified, tortured, unjustly arrested, uh, spit on, alone, ashamed. Are you offended by that? I am offended by that. I mean, it just sounds wrong. Like, you're just, I, I mean, if I was sitting in your shoes, I'd be like, why are you saying that? You know, uh, it's just so unpleasant. It's so distasteful. And, the, and I'll tell you, the reason why it's distasteful is not simply because the cross itself is distasteful, right? You know, splintery cross and bloody and gruesome and uh, brutal but it's also in the context of everything that Oprah Winfrey stands for. Everything that, that, of what she's offering to us is inspiration and happiness and success and prosperity. And the cross of Jesus has no place in that world of wisdom. It doesn't fit there. Right? We want to remove it. We want to turn our heads. We want to talk about something else. Don't you? Didn't you when I just said that? I did. And what Paul is saying here, though, is that all, these, all the writers, all the doctors, all the spiritual gurus, all the physical trainers, who all actually have a lot of helpful things to say to us, right? I, I'm not opposed. There's a lot of helpful things that Oprah would say. <laughs> sure. But what he is saying is they cannot save you. They cannot save your life. They cannot deal with the fundamental problem in your life. That's what he says. They deal with something on the surface. And so, 
one of the things that we have to accept as Christians is that it will always be the case that the cross, the center of our of everything we put hope in is always going to be foolishness to the world because it doesn't make sense to the world, doesn't fit in the ideas and the wisdom of the world. Okay? But it turns out that this passage says, even though the world doesn't understand it, even though the world wants to turn its head from the cross, turn its face away, the second thing is that the cross is the only way to God. Mysteriously, this thing that, that is unattractive to us is, seems foolish to us is the only way to God. And uh, you see this here. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says the very power of God, um, everything that God is and who he can offer to be in our lives is, comes to us in the cross. And um, the reason, now, why is it that the wisdom of the world doesn't work? Why is it that it can't save us? And the answer to that is we have to ask the question, well, what am I being saved from? When the Bible talks about being saved, what is it, what's the problem? What is the thing that I need to be rescued out of? And um, because the wisdom of the world will say, what I need, to, what I need is I need health. I need uh, to achieve my goals. I need to be, have more charisma so that I can have more friends around me that I like. Um, I can be more confident. None of these things are bad things, by the way. Do not hear me saying that these are bad things. They're not bad. All of them are good. But they're not our fundamental problem. And in verse 20, Paul tells us what our fundamental problem is. Look at what he says. Verse 20. The world did not know God through wisdom. The world did not know God through wisdom. That's what wisdom couldn't do for us. It could give me a six-pack. It could help me. Well, it hasn't, but it could. Uh, it could help me achieve my goals, but it can't help me to know God. And that is my fundamental problem, is that I, um, is that I don't know God. And that what the Bible says over and over is that the real problem with humanity is not all these, these smaller issues that trouble us and that uh, make life difficult, but the ultimate problem is that by nature, this is the way the Bible talks, is that by nature, I am an enemy of God. My heart is hostile towards God. I want to shut God out. I do not want to thank him for the things he gives me. I want to ignore him. There's a hostility to him, and, and Paul is saying what we need to know is we need to know God. Now, the Bible, to know God in the Bible is not simply to have knowledge of, oh, there is a being out there who made all things. To know God, to know someone in the Bible is to be intimate with them, right? You know, Adam and Eve, I've said this before, in Genesis 4, they went into the tent and Adam knew Eve. They were intimate with each other, right? So there is a closeness. And that's what knowing someone in the Bible is about. It is a covenant love of being bound together. And the thing is, and most of us know that, that we can easily go decades of our life ignoring God. That feels completely natural to us. And so what Paul is saying is that as helpful as all these things that the wisdom of the world speaks to, it doesn't address our fundamental issue of do we know our creator, the one who made us, that gives purpose to our life and why we even exist. And so it turns out that even though, and it's, I apologize for picking on Oprah Winfrey if you're an Oprah Winfrey fan, but, uh, but as much as Oprah Winfrey has a certain level of authenticity going on and honesty in the show, there is a far more profound authenticity and honesty happening at the cross of Christ. 
One that is, is a much harder pill to swallow, right? Because what does the cross tell us about who we are? About the honesty of, of the human race and about my own life, okay? Well, first of all, the cross shows us how we treat people. It shows us the violence that humans do, right? Here's an, uh, it, there's injustice in the cross. Jesus was an innocent man that was crucified. He was uh, abandoned by his disciples, by his closest friends. They left him alone. He was, uh, he was ashamed. He was spit on. There was the physical pain. Everything about what humans do to each other all happened to Jesus. And so it is a picture to us of what humans are like. And what Christians have always said is the way that humans treat each other in the world is not something that other people do. It is something that lives inside of each one of us. That violence, that envy, that bitterness lives in each one of us. So when we look at the cross, we see this is how I treat people. But not only is this how I treat people, this is how I treat God. Because Jesus was God become a man. He's walking among us. And what is he doing? He's healing people. He's blessing people. He's speaking the truth. Um, he's, you know, challenging the oppressive powers. And, uh, and what, what do we do to him? We silence him. We call him evil. We say, you're a blasphemer. And don't you dare talk to us that way. And we're, gonna, we're not going to tell you. We're going to let you tell us what to do. We are going to be in charge. We're going to manhandle you. And Christians have always said that this is representative of all of humanity. This is what we do with God. So this is how we treat God and this is how we treat people. But then the cross even goes maybe one step further and, and also shows us what we deserve. This is uh, fundamental. When the Bible says that Jesus died for us, it means that he died in our place as our substitute, which is a profound thing that, that uh, the, the penalty for the way we have treated God is death, and Jesus has taken that death for us. And so there is a whole new level of honesty that happens when you look at the cross about who we are. There's a whole new level of authenticity, if you might put it. Um, and so let me just say this, that if we, if we come to the Bible and we say, yes, there is evil in the world, man, mis people mistreat one another, even people betray friends and betray their spouses, and we say, yeah, there's evil in the world, but that's not really me. I'm not one of those evil people. The cross will never make sense to us. It will have nothing to offer us. It'll be strange, it'll be foolish, and, and there'd be no reason for us to waste our time until we come to the honesty of who we are. And so the beginning of the Christian life is not thinking that maybe Christianity can make me a better person. It's not thinking that maybe Christianity can give me some tools uh, to be healthier and uh, to be more prosperous. It turns out Christianity does do that, but that can't be the beginning of the Christian life. Um, because if we approach it that way, how can, the, how can the Bible make me a better person? The cross means nothing. But the beginning of the Christian life is admitting that by nature I live in defiance against my Creator. And that is why nothing works. Why can't I love people? And why can't I receive love from people? Why can't I stay in loving? Why are they always ruptured and fractured and there's always problems? The thing that God says is really important is love and relationships above achieving goals or, or my physical health or, um, or my popularity is my ability to love other people and be loved. Why is that the one thing I can't do? The Bible says it's because we don't know God. That is our problem. And, um, and so the Christian life begins by saying, how can I find peace with God? And as soon as we ask that question, we see that God has offered us a way in the cross. And we receive it with thanksgiving. 
And let me just say, if you're here today and you say, wow, you know, heavy, heavy stuff you're talking about. I'm an enemy of God and I deserve to die on the cross. Heavy stuff. Let me just encourage you. We have to ask the question, what is the problem in my life? We have to be honest with that. Now, it turns out that the cross is also not just a statement of honesty about who I am, but it's a statement of honesty about who God is in his tremendous love for us. The depths that he would go, that he would become a fool. He would become weak in order to receive me, in order to be reconciled to me, so that I can be honest about my life and know that I'm loved in Christ. And so, this raises a question for us. How am I supposed to approach God? How am I supposed to approach God? And look at verse 22. Look at what Paul says. For Jews demand signs. Now, what's he talking about, demand signs? What he's talking about is that the Jews expect that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do miraculous things. He's going to have power. And so the Jews are saying, the thing that they're looking for is, how can you give me power? And Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks are saying, where can I find wisdom? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And what he is saying is that the world is looking for both power and wisdom so that we can get control over our own lives. If you can offer me power and wisdom, then I'll be in control. Then my life will make sense. And uh, I can deliver myself from the futility of the world. And what this means is there's two different ways that you can approach God, two different ways that are radically different, right? Which, think through which is the way that you approach God and that you think about him. First, you could think that God can help me in having a happier life. God can help me in having a happier life. Now, if you think of it that way, what's going to happen? How are you going to treat God? Well, God is a little helper that I can call on to achieve my goals, my purposes, a life that's devoted to myself, and I can call on him whenever I need him to help things go better for me, right? So it's not a life devoted for him, it's a life devoted for me. And he's like my assistant. Now, you have to be careful because the Bible uses exactly that language about God, that he is a helper. Like, I I set my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from you, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Okay? God is a helper. But it is not because he's my assistant. It's because he's so good and he's kind and he's a loving father. And he he wants to walk with me and provide all that I need. But that is not his primary role in my life. He is my God. But if I come to God and say, I have been your enemy, and the main thing I need is not a happier life, but I need peace with God, I need to know God, I need to be reconciled to him, then my whole life is defined by grace. That God has received me not because I'm good, but because Jesus is good. And everything that I have comes as a gift from God. And then my whole life is not about God being my assistant, but about God, uh, but a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and devotion to him that every decision I make is he's given his life for me so I want to give my life back for him. It is a far more profound, deep, and intimate relationship. And so when we go to God through the cross, we find this true intimacy. And I'll tell you what happens. Often, when you say my goal is not a happier life, it's not prosperity and and popularity and wealth, and these things, but my priority in life is to know God. It turns out that a lot of these other things begin to work out, right? Because you become more loving. And all of a sudden, you might actually have some real relationships. And the thing that you wanted, you start to have that. Or um, you might 
uh, take your work more seriously. You do your work to serve other people. And then guess what? That's what they wanted in your workplace. So you begin to advance in your workplace. And, you, and all of these things come, and your marriage, start, you start to have intimacy with God within your marriage because uh, you've learned about grace from God, and you've learned to be forgiving. It turns out that if you seek the world, you get frustrated and you get nothing. If you seek God through the cross, you get the world thrown in as a bonus. And that happens partially in this life, and it happens fully in the life to come and in the resurrection. And so this is the odd reversal of what the, what the world tells us, is, is that uh, the cross will always be foolishness to the world. But it is the only way to know God. And when you go through those doors, you will find intimacy, you will find forgiveness, you will find honesty about your own life. And it turns out that you will begin to have love to be the defining principle of your life, not power and not wisdom and not control. So let me invite you to, to fix your eyes on the cross, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross on our behalf. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you speak honestly to us even things that may offend us, that may challenge us. Give us humility to hear from you. May your light shine in our darkness. And would you lead us to the great love that you have shown us in Jesus, that we would embrace your offer of reconciliation, that we would have peace with our God and know what it is uh, to know you. I pray for those who are here who do not yet know you, I pray that even today your spirit would guide them uh, into the knowledge of your goodness, your justice, your truth, and your grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.